answer by throwing your hand up. Does anyone in this room have this habit of watching movies but like passing out? It's just like you're just known for it, maybe in your family or amongst your friends. You pass out, you wake up like partway through and you're wondering what happened. So you turn to the person next to you, ask them, like, what's going on? What happened? Why are they doing that? Wait, I don't understand this. And then the person gets mad at you because this is a habit in your life and you're constantly interrupting their viewing experience, having to catch them up. Today we're going to do that without any of the tension, without any of the conflict, okay? We are going to jump back into the series in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's been a little bit since then. So what I want to do is give us some of that context to jog our memory. Because I think if we, if we don't remember what's going on, we won't really f- be able to fit in what's happening in this moment in the passage that we're looking at today. Matthew, he starts his gospel by telling us Jesus' origin story and connecting Jesus to the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills the promises of God. But he also tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's going to inform everything that follows from that moment on. And basically, the first four chapters, with chapter, the ending of chapter 4, all go announcing the kingdom of God. And this is a big deal, because the kingdom of God was supposed to come at the end of time and through God's chosen king, the Messiah. He would restore creation, judge Satan, all of evil, forgive the sins of his people, and undo the effects of sin, of evil, of Satan. God would live and rule with his people, and Jesus is saying, look, the time is now when he says that the kingdom has come. The time is now. I am the bringer of the kingdom. Come and follow me. And then he calls his first disciples. That all happens in this first uh, four chapters of Matthew's gospel. But then once you hit chapter 5, Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. He goes up onto a mountain, and in really symbolic language that Matthew gives us, he's trying to portray Jesus like Matthew. Sorry, like Moses, not Matthew. Starts with an M. I got myself mixed up. And so Jesus begins to paint this dynamic portrait of what the kingdom of God looks like of what it looks like when people begin to live in the kingdom of God, how people live in relation to God, to one another, and to themselves. And he ends with this warning and a promise that only those who commit to him will experience flourishing in their lives. And when the storms of life come, he says, you'll remain standing if you build your life on me, on my teaching, on my words. You with me? You tracking with me here? Yeah? You just need a couple nods, okay? So he's announced that the kingdom of God has come. He's painted this portrait. And now he's going to bring the kingdom of God into people's lives as he comes off of the mountain. And that's what we begin to see in Matthew 8, is Jesus doing that. And what Matthew does is he gives us nine different pictures of Jesus bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives. These different miracles, these different signs. And interspersed after each three is this call. To follow me. Three miracles, follow me. Three miracles, follow me. Three miracles, follow me. Jesus has already done that on the Sermon on the Mount when he finishes it. He's calling people to choose his way. Now he's going to do it in action as he brings the kingdom into people's lives. We're going to look at the middle three of these miracles, the the middle three of these signs. And there's this one unifying theme about all three of them. 
And it is the authority of Jesus over all things. And so you'll see the slide behind me. He has authority over the storms, these waves and winds. It's followed by scene two, his authority over evil spirits. And then scene three, his authority over sin. What we're going to do is just go scene by scene. So scene one, authority over the storms. This is what Matthew tells us. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. Our Father in heaven, we invite you to speak to us this morning by your Spirit, through Jesus, that we would hear from you, that we would turn our eyes to you, that you would convict and comfort, strengthen and encourage, empower us, Lord, for the task and the call that you have on our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. So Jesus has this authority over storms. The thing that we're told is suddenly a furious storm came upon the lake. And this wasn't all that uncommon. This area, the Sea of Galilee, really it's more like a lake. It's not very big. But the Galilee had this low elevation. And it was surrounded by mountains to the east and to the west that rise above the lake. And, And an east wind that would come in blowing very fast over the mountains, which would result in these violent storms and winds that would come over the lake. You would actually see waves that could be as tall as seven feet or even higher. Now the sea or water, to the Jewish mind, the sea represented the forces of chaos. And it was out of this chaotic and formless waters that God creates the earth. God brought order out of chaos, and the Psalms captured this belief. Well, again, let me give you two examples. Psalm 65, the psalmist writes, God, our Savior, formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves. And then Psalm 89 similarly says, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. So Israel and the disciples, they lived with this awareness of God's power over creation. That by his very words, he could still the waves, the storms, the seas. And even though they knew that the seas were dangerous, uncontrollable, chaotic, these disciples actually made their living off of this lake. This lake was not foreign to them. This was their home away from home. They were fishermen by trade. They had learned their trade here on these very waters. They had spent countless days and nights here, early in the morning, late at night, on beautiful days, rainy days, even storms. These guys knew this lake like the back of their head, back of their hand. No one knows the back of their head. This was where they spent so much of their life. They knew it. It was common for them. The storm was furious, and it came quickly, violently, and it actually terrified them. 
They couldn't write out this one. They had written out other ones, but not this one. This was beyond their capacity. And what's Jesus doing in this situation? He's tired and he's sleeping. Sleeping like, um, I know I have someone in my life who can sleep through like so many things so easily. They don't wake up to their kids. You have to shake them to wake them up. You know who you are. You're in this room. I, I need some of that. Teach me how to do that. Jesus has that ability. Jesus is in this boat during the storm, and he's sleeping. And they call on Jesus and say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus presumably wakes up, opens his eyes, and says to them, Oh, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he just rebukes the winds and the waves, and they obey him. The storm stops. And when you hear this, you could think, Oh, man, Jesus must be kind of grumpy. I'd probably be grumpy. I am grumpy, actually, when I'm woken. Jesus is not. What's going on here, then? Well, the disciples, they're afraid. They're genuinely afraid they're going to die. And they feel, they feel the massive waves slamming against their boat, the torrent of water pouring down on them, the mighty winds blowing upon them, and fear sets in. There isn't order. They don't have control over their situation. And it doesn't matter that they're familiar with this sea. They've never experienced a storm like this. And death feels like it's at their doorstep. But what they're missing, even though they can call Jesus Lord and say, save us, what they're missing is, look, they're following him, but they're not fully recognizing him. They're not fully recognizing who he is. Their faith is little because it's deficient for the task that he has for them in this moment. Jesus, we've already been told, is God with us. And he is with them in the boat. He is the bringer of the kingdom of God. And because he's with them, they're secure. They don't have to be afraid. And it's in this mundane and familiar place for them that they're going to encounter the storm that they've never faced before. And it's there that Jesus wants them to know experientially who he is and trust him, to live in that place. Not just know, oh yeah, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. Jesus wants them to know, yes, I am, and more than that. And I want you to live and experience the reality of what that means. What kind of man is this, that even the winds and waves are subject to his command, that even creation obeys him? He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is the captain of the boat, and he is the Lord of the seas. He is the God who rules over the surging seas. Through his words, he stills the roaring seas and calms the mountain waves. He's the Lord of the storms. He has authority over all of creation. He's the creator of the universe. And he has the authority to change the chemical makeup of water, to turn it into wine. He has the authority to pull people out of death and breathe his life into them. By his touch, he causes sick and even dying cells to transform into healthy and living cells. He doesn't even have to come and touch. He can just speak. Speak a word, and everything is subject to his word. He has that kind of power. The words that we're looking for when we describe this is sovereign. Absolute power. Unlimited power. Boundless power. Supreme power. When King Jesus speaks, the winds, the seas, they obey his commands. And Jesus wants them to see that. 
So when he tells them, oh, you little faith, it's not like he's ready to abandon them saying, you guys don't got it, you don't understand it, I've got to find someone else. That's not what he's doing. But he wants them to learn and to recognize who is with them, who has called them, and who is with them in this boat, and that because of that, they don't actually have to be afraid. What would it look like to believe that Jesus is really sovereign over your life? That he is with you in the boat and that he is in absolute control of your life as the storms of life hit you. I want to suggest three things. One is you're, you're going to be confident. If you live like this, you'd be confident that he will use his power for our good. This is not a king, a sovereign, who uses his power for himself. Philippians 2 teaches us that Jesus actually left his throne in heaven, took on the form of a man, became one of us, and was subjected to death on a cross. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't count having power like that as something to be held on to. But he surrendered that and laid down his life for us. He will use his power for our good. And Paul will write in Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We have this confidence that God can take all that comes to us in the storms of life, unemployment, failed relationships, arguments with our boss, rejection letters from the school you applied at, relapse into your drug of choice, moving because your landlord is selling their home. You can take all of those things he can take all of them out and actually use them for our good. And it may not be that God, Jesus actually stops that external storm, but through his presence and his words, he actually stills the storm in our hearts and our lives. And we can trust him that he will one day stop that storm, that it won't be forever. The lie from the enemy is that the storm will never end, and so you have to give up. You have to stop stop trusting, start panicking, start self-medicating, start having a pity party. And if you believe that Jesus is king over the cosmos, over your life, then you can live with this confidence that he is the captain of the ship of your life. And he will lead you down a path that forms you into a person that looks like him, that blesses people the way he does. He starts to change through these experiences your thoughts, your desires, and behaviors so that they actually reflect his. Secondly, you become a non-anxious presence. There is a storm all around you, but you have this peace, an otherworldly peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. It's not a peace of this world, though, but it is for this world because he himself is with you. His non-anxious presence is your form firm foundation for all of the uncertainty of life. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus promises in Matthew 28. There is no place you can go, no trial you can face, no pit that you will fall into where Jesus won't be with you there. He's with you even in the suffering, especially in the suffering. He's with you. And third, you're confident in his grace and love for you. You have this confidence that even if you do panic, that even if you do run in the wrong direction, like the disciples in this moment, they begin to panic, he will not abandon you. He will not reject you. He is God with us. 
Following Jesus has this really fascinating thing happen in our lives. It will expose our lack of understanding of who he is and our lack of trust in him, but it will also give you these opportunities to experience his grace and his love. In that spot, in that area where you're exposed, you get to experience his love and his grace for you. And there's going to be opportunities then to grow in trusting and understanding who Jesus truly is. That's the irony of following him, is you have both. You get exposed, it gets exposed in your life, but you also get to experience his grace and love through that. You have to trust him to take that initial first step of following him. But as you do, you become more aware of the areas of your life where you don't trust him. A number of years ago, this happened in my life. I was uh, uh, trying to discern if I should go on a mission, like actually become like a full-time missionary in Mexico. And there were things that were stopping me from doing it. And, and a lot of it was like money and inconvenience. And I was like, if I, there's all these opportunity costs by me going down there and not working. I'm trying to pay my undergrad, not graduate without debt. And if I do this, I'm really like not helping that cause. So I was hesitant, but I also felt within me this, this conviction that I didn't want to live my life based strictly on money, that that would be the sole reason I make a decision on whether or not to do something. I wanted to live my life trusting that he could provide the things that I needed. So in the end, I decided to go on this uh, kind of exploratory two-month or uh, maybe like, three, yeah, I think it was two-month or, or three-month mission to just try to discern if I should do this. And while I was there, I felt, uh, I was just having this quiet time with the Lord, and I felt, the Lord asked me, do you trust me? And I was like, Lord, no, not completely. There's parts of my life that I'm aware of that I actually, they're hard for me to give over to you, to fully trust you with, and it makes me anxious to think about that. And that process, if we're honest with ourselves, is true about all of us. That there are parts of our lives that over time we will discover, wow, I actually wasn't trusting you with this, Jesus. That I've trusted you here, and I've come up to this point, but if I'm going to keep going, I'm going to have to continue to trust you. There's this part of our lives where it's regularly, daily trusting him in the little things that no one sees but you and him, and in the things that are done in front of other people. But if you believe that Jesus is sovereign over all of our lives, you will actually live with this confidence that even when you realize you haven't been trusting him in this area, you will discover his grace and his love for you, that he doesn't abandon you. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't do it with his disciples here, and he won't do it with us. See, our discipleship isn't linear. You will fail. But you're going to gain this confidence through this experience of him actually showing up in your place of failure, in your, place, in your discovery of like, wow, like, I don't trust you here. And just like Peter, later on in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to step out of the boat. He's going to have this faith to trust that Jesus will enable him to walk on water, and he does. But what happens? He looks at the winds and the waves, and he gets terrified, and he starts to sink, and he says, Jesus, save me. And what does Jesus do? Say, well, you're on your own, buddy. No. He reaches for him and pulls him out. 
This is the confidence that the people of God can have in Jesus. That when we step out, he will sustain us. And when we start to become fearful, he won't abandon us. Jesus always honors our genuine trust in his nature and character. And we must trust that he genuinely is in control of all of the storms of our lives and that he is a good, great captain. We can trust him with where he's leading us. Okay, scene two. Authority to set us free from evil spirits. This is Matthew 8, verse 28 to 32. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the uh, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Okay, there's a bunch here. Probably not going to be able to speak into all of it. Allow me just to try to give us a bit of context. Demons are spiritual created beings. They were created by God, subject to God, and they were placed by God over nations to cultivate his good creation, but instead have rebelled. They've rebelled against God, and rather than cultivate flourishing for the, commu- for the glory of God and joy of his people, they've chosen to rule, not for good, but for evil. Here is how Timothy Gombis puts this. He says, look, they no longer function so that nations come to fear and worship the Most High God, but now they enslave the nations. They pursue a strategy that prevents humanity from carrying out its mission to be the image of God on earth. The powers orient the cultures of the world so that humanity will develop patterns of sin, enslaving them in spiritual death. Their aim is the destruction and enslavement of humanity. So here's what this means. Wherever you see destructive social patterns, systems of injustice and oppression that allow for the exploitation of humans and prevent human flourishing, you are seeing the effects of the demonic. That's the broad picture. In this specific situation, you see these two men who are demonically enslaved, oppressed. But what we're going to see happen is Jesus and his kingdom confront them. See, these men, they live in a graveyard, a place of of death, and they're so violent, people are avoiding them. They effectively rule over this little area with malice, violence, and death. And these demons that have been blocking people from being able to come into this area are now frozen, standing still before Jesus, who blocks their way. They may be powerful, but their power is limited. And without his permission or tolerance, they can't do anything. Now, this is Jesus' first visit outside of Jewish soil. This is part of God's mission advancing. And he's coming to set captives free. He's come to rescue and renew humanity, to restore all things. Now, Jews had it in their mind that on the day of judgment, at the end of time, God and the Messiah would destroy all demons. Hence what the, the, the demons say to Jesus. 
They recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, but they don't follow him. So one scholar actually kind of translates their shouts as, hey, why are you meddling with us, O Son of God? Have you come here ahead of judgment just to torture us? They don't call him Son of God out of um, honor. They don't honor him. They don't worship him. They do it out of fear. Many times when people would encounter uh, uh, the spiritual, they would uh, try to give a, a name of honor to almost like protect themselves from any of their powers. And that's what it seems like the demons are doing. They don't comprehend his power. They fear his power, but they don't live by his power. And their screams express confusion, instability, and fear. Like, why have you come here before the final day of judgment to destroy us? And what's happening is, see, wherever Jesus appears, he brings judgment. And some of us don't love that word, but what we mean here is when the kingdom of God comes among us, there is an exposing that happens between the works of evil, the schemes of the evil one, and the kingdom of God. It's exposed, it's highlighted, and judgment comes in that place. And wherever Jesus is proclaimed, wherever his gospel is proclaimed, the judgment of God gets wrenched into the present. God's power over all of creation, over Satan, over all of evil, over death, over sin, are revealed in Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And when these two demons come into the presence of the Savior King Jesus, they're tormented. And something similar happens today. When we proclaim the glorious mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, something happens not just in this room among those of us we can see, but in the unseen realm as well. Evil is being driven out. It's being driven out of our hearts. It's being driven out of our communities. It's being driven out of our neighborhood. Don't dismiss the presence of Jesus that we carry with us. Don't dismiss his gospel. Don't dismiss the word as if there's no power, no effect on your life, no effect on those around you. Frederick Dale Bruner will say, look, the, the brute fact of Jesus' presence today, his word in his church, is exorcism. The living, a living church just sitting on the block, a disciple sitting there in the office, the word just being explained in, in the Sunday school class, all of these by their simple existence in some deep way exercise. Why? Because when Jesus is present or proclaimed, he is driving out evil out of our hearts, out of our families, out of our community, out of our church, out of our city. And some of us think that has to like, be expressed or shown in this like, really like, uh, creepy way. It's often not like that. Realize that when you feel conviction over the way you've treated someone, when someone confronts you about something you've done wrong, when you hear a message and you feel compelled to obey and follow, when you're drawn to Scripture, to God, to His people, to serve, when you feel uncomfortable when the things that you know don't honor God, that's Jesus driving you away from evil, driving evil out of your life and wanting to replace it with His presence, with His life. That's part of what confession does. You reject evil that you did, the sin you chose, the patterns of thinking that destroy, and you turn in repentance to God. Baptism proclaims this. In baptism, we're immersed into water. We say to the seen and the unseen realm, 
that I am buried into Jesus' death as I go into the water. All of my sin, all of the evil in my life that I've committed, all of my past, all of my flesh, all of my pride are buried with him. And I am washed in his blood. I now become part of God's family. God is responsible for me. I am filled with the Spirit, and the name of Jesus is put on my heart. All of that is buried and left in the water, and I am risen to new life with him. We're secure. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized, something's off. Because it's not because you have to have everything perfect and figured out. You won't. For the rest of your life, you won't. But there's this call when you follow Jesus to actually be baptized. You don't have to have it all figured out, but you do have to be committed to him. And what's remarkable about this scene here with Jesus is that Jesus doesn't have this long incantation, this long prayer. He doesn't even answer the questions they're asking him. He doesn't do any of that. All Jesus says is, go. In fact, in the Greek, there's no like exclamation mark, like he's yelling. It's just, go. Go. He has that kind of authority, that they tremble at his name, the Greeks suggest that it's not just the pigs that die, but the demons as they go into the water. And it's not just the realm of creation that we can see with our eyes that's subject to his commands. It's one small word drove them out, and one simple word drowns them. He has that authority to drive back the frontiers of evil and the demonic. The one now in us is greater than the one in the world. And so we walk with this confidence of that authority in our lives not in fear of what we might encounter. He is the captain of the boat of our lives. He is the Lord of the storms, and he's the Lord of the spiritual realm as well. Scene three, he has authority to forgive. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the men, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This, man, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God, who had given such authority to man. Scene three is like this climax. Jesus sees a man who's paralyzed, and instead of saying, hey, would you like to be healed, he says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. As we hear that, that doesn't really jive with how we would think of how you're supposed to handle the situation. See, sin is something that is primarily incurred against God. And even when you sin against yourself or others, you've sinned against God because you're made in his image. To be made in his image means, or speaks of, the mission that God gave humanity to reflect him to the world. We were to represent God to humanity, to the world, by loving God and loving others. And our failure to do that is sin. Sin then incurs a spiritual debt, 
that we owe to God. It damages and destroys our relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, because we're not able to really image him fully. And because of this, sin leads to death. Sin is our great enemy. Sin is what Satan wants humanity caught in, enslaved in. And Israel saw this intimate connection between sin and sickness. Like in Psalm 32, where it reads, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, Jews had this belief that no sick person could be healed until all their sins had been forgiven. And this man, this paralyzed man, lived with this deep sense of sin in his life. He felt this in his life. If you read in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, it's the same account. Mark's a little more detailed. And he says that his friends cut open a hole in the roof and plopped this guy right in front of Jesus. But what makes this so outrageous to some of the people listening is that is what Jesus says. Because he doesn't say your sin can be forgiven. He says your sins are forgiven. He's saying, I know your sins are forgiven. He's authoritatively telling another human being they're standing before God. He has the power to mediate your ultimate relationship between you and God. On what basis can Jesus tell this man? What is it that allows this man to be forgiven? What brought this man's gift of salvation that opens this door of forgiveness and healing? Well, there's just like three words. Jesus saw their faith. I guess it's four. I never was good at math. Jesus saw their faith. His words for forgiveness had healing power. He saw the faith of his friends who broke this roof open and put him before Jesus. Jesus saw the faith of a man who believed Jesus could heal him. He saw the skeptical judgment of the Pharisees too. He knows the thoughts and desires of those in this place. He knows what goes on deep within the recesses of our heart. And he sees it all, but what he celebrates is faith or trust in him. That's what makes this man rightly related to God. Faith in Jesus. Faith is what pleases God. Faith in Jesus is what releases the floodgates of God's forgiveness, wiping out the debt of your sin. Faith in Jesus is what propels you to follow and obey him. Faith in Jesus is what empowers you to walk with confidence that he will use his power for your good. Faith in Jesus is what establishes you as a non-anxious presence. Faith in Jesus is what makes you confident that the one who is in you is greater than the one in the world. That he can lead you into freedom from all of evil, all demonic influences. Faith in Jesus is how you are restored to right relationship with God, with yourself, with others, and the world. Faith in Jesus is what brings healing into your life. And yet what I love in reading this story is that you can't just focus on the man and his faith. It isn't only this man's faith that Jesus sees, but his friends. They are the ones who break open the the roof. Their bold, insistent faith, it's even indifferent to the cost of breaking someone's roof. Like, you got to imagine that person must have been pretty upset. It's really cool to see someone get healed, but did you have to destroy my roof. I don't know if I would be okay with that. It would take me some time to see that. But in so doing, in bringing 
their friend into the presence of Jesus, they win with their faith a deeper and mightier faith for their friend. They win seeing their friend restored. And you know what? I was reading this and I was thinking about how many of us are doing that right now. That we do that for people we love. We bring people into the presence of Jesus and we plead on their behalf. That's my story. My mom and my grandma, they're interceding and praying on my behalf as I'm doing my own thing, not interested in Jesus and his way at all. But they're doing it, whether I know it or not. More often than not, they weren't telling me. But they were bringing me into his presence. I didn't have the faith. I wasn't actually interested in it. But they were for me. Some of you are doing that. The faith of people, for those in need, it counts with Jesus. He sees it. Some of you are in need of that right now. You're not actually the friend interceding. You actually feel more like the person being dropped in. You feel the weight of your sin. You feel all these other things in life have impacted you, and you're despairing. What you need to do is actually cling to the prayers of others. Grasp onto the faith of the church and let us carry you in this season. You need others to bring you in because you feel like you literally just can't. And what I'd like to do is to pray with you today. That if, if, if that's you, praying for a friend, a family member that you're bringing before Jesus, I just want to pray with you. And, and um, I'm going to do something different, for at least different for Cascades. I'm just going to invite you to put up your hand if there's someone in your life. You don't have to name them. You don't have to do anything. Just throw up your hand. And I want to pray with you for these people because he sees that faith. If there's someone you're bringing towards, to Jesus in your prayers, I'd love to join you right now. So if you're comfortable, would you just put up your hand and uh, we'll pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the knower of all hearts. You are the knower of all thoughts. You hear our prayers. You are the king of the cosmos. And I pray with people who have, bringing, have been bringing others to you, into your presence. Together with them, before you end in faith, I ask for their salvation. That you would save them, that you would restore those who have wandered away. We ask that healing would come. Physical healing, emotional, spiritual. We ask for you to enter into their storms, to still their hearts, to drive out any forces of evil at work in their lives. We ask for you to drive the enemy out and then replace the void with your presence, with your Holy Spirit. We know, Lord Jesus, that you love them more than we possibly can. And so in faith, we want to trust that you hear our prayers and that you are at work in their lives. And we thank you that you see our faith for our friends and family. Amen. I want to similarly invite any of you who feel like you're, you're the one being plopped in. You don't feel like you actually have very much to give or to do. You can barely move. 
but I want to invite you to put up your hand. You don't have to say what's gone on in your life. I just want to pray with you, for you, as a church. So we'll pray right now. Lord Jesus, you are the captain of the ship of our lives. You are able to still the storms. I ask that you would still the storm in the hearts of those who right now feel like they resonate with that guy being plopped in before you, who need others to do it. Jesus, I ask for you to fill them with your love, which is more than able to cast out all fear. Jesus, highlight any sin and lead them in repentance. Forgive them for it. Jesus, heal them of all bitterness. Jesus, give them friends to pray with and for them. And we ask that you bring them to our minds. And all of this we pray so that they would have the strength to get up Stand and then walk with you for your glory and our joy. In your strong and mighty name, Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we get.